Okay, all right, how are we doing today? Pretty good. Good, great. I'm just making sure things are working. Okay, good. All right, so let's get into it then. Um, so I don't think we have any housekeeping. I'm sorry I've been behind on responding to the weekly responses. I know I have uh, two weeks of them to respond to, and I'll try and get that done in the next uh, two or three days. This is also just a reminder that we have um, no class on Wednesday. I'll send out a, a recording um, with probably with a slideshow posted in the content folder area as well. Uh, just that's the thing with Wednesday is no class on, on Wednesday. So just listen to that. And for that reason, we're going to reverse things. Typically, we do kind of like the history on uh, the history of the error uh, on Monday. We're going to do that on Wednesday. So the, the lecture will be on that, and we'll cover the play. Um, I know we're kind of jumping into the play then without really historical context. Th you know, w what you need will go over. It's not, um, it shouldn't dampen our ability to, to read this thing. Um, and I think that is about it. Um, I know midterm grades have to come in. So basically you have the, the one grade so far. Uh, and then if you've kept up with your your weekly responses, then, then that's going to be that. Um, for anybody who has not been keeping up with their weekly responses, please start sending them in. You're probably in the position where you're going to be losing points on your final grade. All right. Um, anything else we have to talk about? Is there anything, any other questions? question about the new assignment the directing one mm -hmm. so for the examples you gave us is that kind of the format um that you want us to follow yes sort of like you divide it like there was one document i can't remember which one um it was like for the actions i think it had like a weird format yeah it had the three columns yeah that mm -hmm. one do you want it to look like that if we divide it um, action by action I think mm -hmm. yes yeah that should be the idea is that you'd have a, a you know kind of column laid out in which you you know write what the the action adjustment and activity is okay mm -hmm. um, when is that project due again um, let's say November I think uh, no, uh, the ninth, eleven nine. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Okay, anything else? All right, good. Uh, so another thing. Then let's get into the play. Uh, what did you guys think of the play? What was the the initial responses to it? Was it the country wife? Mm-hmm. Yep. I thought it was like um, not confusing, but I, I guess I wasn't used to um, the layout. I guess it was a bit unique. Okay, how so? I guess the way it was written was pretty unique. All right. How 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 do you mean? What makes it unique? 
like, well, obviously I didn't feel like anything else you read, but it was just, um, unique, like, I don't know, I don't even know what I'm really saying, I mean, I just thought it was unique right off the bat, like, first impression, different way, different, yeah. Okay, so so this play was premiered on, in 1675, right, so not that far away from Moliere, right, but in England. So we're dealing with characters who are of a similar class to the characters in Moliere, the kind of the upper class people, people who have access to court, the court as well. So what would be, let's let's try and use Moliere as a, a foil. Um, what would be some of the differences between this and Moliere, even though we're dealing with the same class of people. Okay, so there's a there's one really big difference between uh, the misanthrope and this play here. Okay, so so that's a good point. Um, there is there's a difference in the prose style. Moliere is using verse, first of all, right? He he's not really using prose. Prose is just writing, not in meter, um, and then verse is writing in meter. So there is no meter here. That's so that's right, Aliana. And then Moliere definitely has his his uh, 12 meter line, his 12 syllable lines. So the, there's a difference, sure. Um, and very little of this rhymes, obviously. So there, that's one big difference. What's another difference? And I think Aliana also points out there are there aren't really big speeches. Okay, we get maybe the prologue and the epilogue, but everything else is, um, you know, there's no real lengthy monologues in this play. So good. So th those are some kind of technical differences. How about the differences in the characters? Um, our our main character, you know, Alceste and. Uh, Filion and, and all and all those characters, um, what what is their relationship to decorum? Right, how is decorum demonstrated in Moliere? In Moliere's play, it felt more like, are you talking with, about the dialogue specifically? Because it feels like Moliere um, wrote his play to make it sound more um, poetic, and the characters were very, um, trying to think of the right words to say, but this is, ver this is less poetic, it's more um, straightforward, cut to the chase, it feels more... 
Um, is that kind of what you're asking? Well, like, yes. Language, obviously different, but it just feels like the characters are more, you know, like the, um, there's no speeches. It's just them talking. It's mm-hmm. they're very um, right to the point. Yeah. So yeah, there, there isn't. They're not using. Um, he's not using poetry, right? There aren't really long speeches. I don't think there's any long speeches, and the writing, even more than than anything else we've probably read so far, is closer to how real people speak. Right? We're not. I mean, it's not entirely that. Um, and we, you know, we get a few chunks, right? Horner does have some things in the very first scene he reads out, but a lot of those are kind of plot, plot based. So yeah, so we're we're getting a little more of a, a realism in this. Um, we're also getting much more uh, scatological details. So so there is a much more open and frank discussion of sex and sexuality. Right. In Moliere, that really doesn't come out. It's it's kind of like there are more suitors, but they're kind of courting each other. There's a sort of um, there's sort of a physical difference, uh, distance, excuse me, between the characters in Moliere. Uh, while with this, they are um, th- this play and these characters really are focused on sex, on the activity itself. Right, so the the decorum in Moliere, the, the sort of rules of decorum, prevent a more frank discussion of sexual activity. However, when we get to sixteen seventy five, in England, you know, not not, <laughs> not in France, but in England, those rules of decorum aren't there. Uh, there are no rules of decorum, really. I mean, there there are. There's emergent rules, but there are there isn't an academy in England that is telling you what you're allowed to say and not allowed to say. There are government officials who are. There's you know kind of the master of the revels. There's the Lord Chamberlain. These are different positions. The Lord Chamberlain works for the master of the revels, and they allow or not allow plays to be licensed Uh, and this is throughout the period between roughly 1660 and 1737 and I'll talk about why those years are are important but what we see here is um, a concern with kind of libertinism and that behavior so let's let's talk about that a little bit does anybody know what that means what, what libertinism means I don't okay Anybody, anybody heard of the term? Okay, so, so libertinism is a, depends on when it's used. We've actually seen it used, the, the word itself used in both As You Like It and King Lear. So in both those plays they mention libertine and in those plays, um, libertine refers to somebody who's kind of sexually promiscuous, yeah, who's really into kind of physical pleasures, not, not just sex, but mostly it refers to um, somebody who's, who's indulging sexual pleasures. Um, it comes to mean something a little different. 
during the middle of the century, the middle of the 17th century, it means something like someone who is um, not bound by a particular religious creed and not bound by any kind of aspect of organized religion. Um, and so in an era when you have different Protestant groups breaking off from other Protestant groups, this was considered, libertine Protestantism was considered the most extreme. However, when we get back into this uh, uh, this part of history, when we get past 1660, when we have a king on the throne of England again, and all that type of thing, libertinism begins to be associated with people like Horner. Um, and so why would a character like Horner embody that type? So let's let's ask another question. What type of person is Horner? What is Horner after in this play? What does he do? Isn't he like well? Isn't he like um a rich like I want to say womanizer, but I don't. No, that's right. Yeah, he he seems to be pretty well off. We're not exactly sure how rich he is. He seems to be um, part of the gentry, even though he's not Sir Horn or anything like that. He doesn't have a title, but he does seem to be part of the lower gentry. He seems to be have means, um, you know, so m possibly he is rich. And he is a womanizer, right? And so he comes up that we learn in the first scene with a particular plan in order to improve his womanizing. What, what is his plan? All right, it's the, it's the first scene of the play. He's talking to a doctor. And what is what is the doctor and Horner discussing? Didn't he, he lie to, or does he lie about having a disease? Yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So he, he says he has some disease that he got in France. Um, and what is the consequence of that disease? What... It's not true. He is lying. Um, but what is, what specifically is he lying about? What can't he do by virtue of this disease? Um, wasn't it basically like sexually transmitted? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, it's a sexually transmitted disease. And therefore the, what he what disinformation he's spreading is that he's he's impotent All right so he's telling everybody he is he's impotent and he's having the doctor quack confirm it and kind of pass out that knowledge 
right? And it's, it's not true, but that's what he's doing. So why is he doing that? Well, I know he wants, well, I, I know he wants to have sex with more women, right? Mm -hmm. um, can't remember why he did it, though. Okay, so it's exactly that. Right, so he wants to, he wants to kind of romance, um, romance more women, um, and the great ones he says have husbands, um, and so the the problem then is these kind of the, these husbands that they are um, that they won't trust when he's around. Um, and therefore, he kind of poses as having this disease in order to get everybody to kind of trust him, right? And so if he could get, um, if he could get the husbands to think he is really no threat, then he could spend time alone with, with women. And does this work? Does he get to spend time alone with married women? So it's it's immediately in that scene, after he finishes having the conversation with Quack the doctor, um, who comes who comes on to the stage? Um, is it his wife and his wife's sister? It, it's not Horner's wife and, and his wife's sister. It's uh, Sir Jasper. Oh, okay. So it's Sir Jasper comes on stage. Uh, Sir Jasper Fidget with Lady Fidget and his his sister. Um, and so Sir Jasper thinks this is really funny that, that Horner is impotent. Um, and, you know, he, he kind of encourages the women to, um, you know, sort of flirt with him or irritate him in that way. Um, yeah. And so, you know, he says at the end of, it's not at the end of the scene, but it's towards the middle of the scene in an aside, "'Tis as much a husband's prudence to provide innocent diversion for a wife as to hinder her unlawful pleasures, and he had better employ her than let her employ herself." And that could, you know, that's sort of the way Sir Jasper isn't as dominant a character as um, Pinchwife or as Sparkish. But that seems to be maybe the um, the motto of somebody like that seems to be the motto of this play is that um, people go towards unlawful pleasures and you, you know, 
since they are, you want to provide an innocent diversion for them. Now, however, Sir Jasper has screwed up because he doesn't realize that the Horner is not an innocent diversion anymore. Um, he's a uh, he's he's not impotent. He is willing to romance them, and actually later in the play we learn that he romances both of those women, that he, he sleeps with both of them. Um, yeah, as well as uh, as Pinchwife. Okay, so that is the the first aspect of this play. It's, it's this rake character, Horner, um, who dominates in that era. These characters are, are very common in um, a Congrave, Witcherly, Rochester, Dryden, they're all producing characters like this. Um, and he, yeah, this kind of rake figure. And so it's going on, just to give you maybe a little background, I know we're not doing the, the history one today, the history class today. Um, just to give you a little background, uh, does anybody know what happens in England in the year 1660? Or in the year 1649? Was this during Charles the Second or Charles the First? The First. It was the um, war, right? Wasn't what was it a war or was it just Charles? It it was. So what ends up happening oh, is the civil war. Was this the civil war? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So sixteen forty nine, um, the Puritans under the under Oliver Cromwell win England. They execute Charles the First. Um, his children, Charles and James, go over to, to England, and, uh, excuse me, go over to France, and from 1649 to 1660, there's a republic in England. Uh, and even though it's a republic, it's still under the rule of Cromwell. The theaters are shut down at this point. In 1660, Cromwell, Cromwell dies in 58. Richard, his son, is, is not particularly skilled at ruling and there becomes a demand from parliament to invite back Charles II they invite Charles back they crown him and in 1660 he is again king and we have what's called the restoration and the restoration of the mon- called the restoration because it's the restoration of the monarchy right from this brief period in which it uh, in which it was suspended so during, very famously, the Puritans hated theater as, you know, we kind of discussed how Christians aren't uh, crazy about theater, even though they sort of resurrect it. That's even more true of the Puritans, who not only hated theater, they even hated Christmas, um, because Christmas was too fun. Um, so, like, uh, I know like Christmas celebration was outlawed by the Puritans in Boston, very early on in in the 17th century. Um, But when 1660 comes around, Charles is very much in this mold of the libertine. Um, And he very much likes the theater. Uh, He legalizes women performing on stage. So for the first time in centuries at this point, you start to see female actors in England on the stage. you know, the first one was Charles's mistress, Nell Gwynn. Um, and the court, the court that surrounds Charles, includes a rakish group. And that's this libertine group, which 
the most famous of them was, I don't know if anybody's heard of him, the Earl of Rochester. His name was John Wilmont, the Earl of Rochester. Uh, Johnny Depp played him in a movie called The Libertine from the 2000s or the, the 2010s. I don't quite remember when the movie was released. It wasn't very good. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's also very gross. Um, and uh, Witcherly, the author of this play, was a part of that circle. So he was a part of a circle of kind of libertines who um, who were interested in kind of the pleasures of the body and also the kind of philosophical implications of living a life geared in that direction. And so what you're seeing with a, a number of plays from this period, it's not, it's not the only thing that's being put on stage, but a number of plays in the 1660s and 1670s uh, before it all stops in the middle of the 1680s, is uh, uh, the kind of libertine play or rake play. Rake is is sort of a reference to a libertine character. They, they're often referred to as the rakes. Um, and so that's what's going on in the theater at this time. right? There's this sort of like, we've been suppressed for 11 years. We're going to go out and have fun. right? You can imagine when, you know, when COVID is over, the kind of general response from people between the ages of 20 and 30 um, is might be something like what happened in 1660, when people were sort of free to celebrate again. And this play is is gearing that energy, is, it, is, it is riding that energy. Uh, and so with the rake figure, and Horner is our rake figure, right? He, he's the person who wants to romance everyone. Um, what, how can we describe him? How can we describe his, his attitudes towards different people? Or his attitude in life generally. If you had to say, what is the philosophy of Horner? What would you say the philosophy of Horner is? I don't think he's really interested in getting to know people. Mm -hmm. He's just, you know, it's all about conquest for him. He's just, like, he doesn't want to know anyone. He just wants to have sex and kind of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. He he is, um, he seems somewhat kind of anti-human almost. And if we go to um, Act Three, Scene Two, so I know we're we're jumping around a little bit, but we're you know surveying this character, so that's that's kind of important. Um, right at the beginning of the play, and I know you have an online thing without page numbers, but um, right towards the beginning of that scene, uh, he's talking with Dorlant. Who's you know, somebody kind of who's who's in his circle, in on the joke, um, and he, you know, he says, Dorlan says, engage to women and not sup with us. Horner responds, I a pox on them all, and they keep talking, and Dorlan says, yet he must be buzzing amongst him, still like other old beetle-headed licorice drones. Avoid him and hate him as they hate you. 
Uh, and then Horner responds, um, because I do hate him and would hate him yet more. I'll frequent him. You may see by marriage, nothing makes a man hate a woman more than her constant conversation. In short, I converse with him as you do with rich fools to laugh at him and use him ill. And the Orlant, but I would no more sup with a woman unless I could lie with him than sup with a rich coxcomb unless I could cheat him. Yes, I have known thee sup with fool for his drinking, if he could set out your hand that way, only you were satisfied, and if you were wine-swallowing mouth, t'was enough. So, yeah, and then uh, Horner later says, Yes, sir, and I'll have the pleasure, at least, of laying him flat with a bottle, and bring as much scandal that way upon him as formerly to other. So, um, what kind of, he, like you're saying, Trisha, he has this sort of, uh, lack of interest in people, but I think it's even more than a lack more than a lack of interest. He also strongly despises other people, and the reason you are with people is to use them, like you were saying, or to lay them low, to mock them. Um, scandal is good. You know, make, making a scandal is is a good thing. Um, uh, the reason why you would sup with a fool, that is, eat, eat a meal with a fool, is in order to use that person or to get at his wife or something like that. Um, and so that's the type of person we're dealing with with Horner, right? He is kind of the, the user of people. Uh, and what happens to Horner during the course of this play? So what would you expect to happen to a character like that in um, a Shakespeare play? Or even in Moliere? Well, I would think that they would kind of face bad consequences for their attitudes, but... Um, in this play, it's kind of like, you know, he, like, he doesn't really face any negative consequences. Yep. Is that what you're saying? Like, yeah, exactly, yeah. Fates are different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, their, their fates are different. So in this play, the the rake character, and this is sort of true of, of these types of plays, the rake figure doesn't real doesn't face a consequence he's actually the one who wins the day or he, he gets what he wants and other characters get what they want too um you know we could think of the the other subplot with althea uh she ends up marrying the person she's interested in um you know she ends up not having to go along with sparkish but really horner isn't punished for his bad actions this would not fly in france in france you know when when somebody acts poorly they would have to be punished for acting poorly you can't just have the bad guys getting away with it um but here 
Is Horner really a bad guy? I mean, how do people feel about him? say Horner is um like he has bad morals I don't know if he's really like a pure villain mm -hmm. but I would say he's yeah I would say he's a bad guy just not in the traditional um sense I guess like he's not you know out trying to destroy the world you know mm -hmm. yeah he, he isn't villainous in um the way we think of like Edmund right from Lear um and in fact, he's probably the most appealing character in the play because he can, he's the smartest character. He can run circles around people. Um, and Mackenzie, you're mentioning he's selfish, but isn't evil. And so what is, what then, if he isn't evil, if he isn't punished, and he is the more appealing or one of the more appealing characters in the play, what, what are the values that are coming out of this play? Probably. Are you talking about for all the characters or just him? Well, for, I mean, it would really be all the characters. I mean, what is, um, what is like the worldview of this, of a world? What's the worldview of a playwright who creates a character like Horner and gives Horner the, the plot that he's given? seems kind of similar to Moliere's play in the sense that he may believe that people are just deceptive they use others for their own um, gains or um, I think that's something that both plays have in common mm -hmm. okay yeah that there is um, that there's deception kind of here um, there, I, I think part of it too is in terms of uh, values and whatnot. There aren't really stressed. There isn't. This isn't a world in which, uh, like Lear, where you know you need to um, have prudence, right? In in the way you rule, otherwise bad things are going to happen. You need to respect your elders because if you don't, if you don't respect the past and and the people who built the past for you, the world sort of collapses. Here, the world is sort of a, a somewhat amoral place. Um, it's probably a little bit closer to the the braggart soldier than anything we've had. But even even so, the world of of uh, Witcherly and the world of you know the libertine circle is really very much one in which it, they're not moralizing, in which um, standing on value, on a, a particular value set, is something you don't do. I mean, it's, very, it's a very Puritan thing to be like, this is good for the sake of it being good. Um, 
And these people seem to uh, really kind of despise everything. There is no moral necessity. There is no kind of virtue that's above everything. Really, in this play, it seems like everything is about power. And if you could get power, if you're clever enough or smart enough to gain it in the way Horner is, um, you know, then then there you go. Then, you, you know, you could have what you want. And we sort of admire the people who can who can have that type of power. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting change, I think, from from past from past plays that we've read is this play is such a response to the kind of the uh, the the Puritans and the Purit and the uh, moralizing of past plays that we end up um, we end up with a a worldview that really is about power and about gaining power um, and I'll talk about this a little bit on Wednesday as well talk about Thomas Hobbes and his kind of political worldview and how that might intersect with with a reading of this play but that's something to think about here uh, in this play okay um, and, and a lot of plays of this period are like that so let's keep going um, and talk about some of the other main main plot elements here so you have Sir Jasper and um, and Horner what is the plot line with um, Harcourt and Sparkish and Alethea. How does that plot transpire? So Alethea is um, Pinchwife's sister. And who is she engaged to in the beginning of this play? Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but is it Alethea? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, Alethea is engaged to... That, that's right. And who is she engaged to? Um, is she engaged to the Sparkish guy? Mm -hmm. She's engaged to Sparkish. Good. And who does she... Who should she be with? And who does she end up with? This is a much more conventional romance, this plot. Right, so she there's a she ends up with in the end with Harcourt. Okay, yeah, so cause I was about to say that the other guy he's like kind of like a bad dude, and he like um he likes Alethea because like she's rich basically. Yeah, for the dowry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly, and when she keeps running into Harcourt, um, what is his response to that? Does he respond the way Pinchwife does, with absolute jealousy? Um, 
So he he doesn't. He's not initially. He does. He is later in the play, but initially, he isn't jealous. Uh, he mentions that he was one who played the field a lot and and plans to continue doing that, um, and that he sees it as since he's really only interested in her dowry. He, he's not emotionally invested, let's say. Um, but he also sees the fact that uh, other men are interested in her as being really, really good or really cool because now he has something that is an object of of desire, and that's his. And so he's perfectly willing to kind of push her at Harcourt. Um, what is her response to the the love triangle, to the fact that she finds herself in close proximity with Harcourt now and then. Wait, can you repeat the question? Sorry. Sure. How does how does she so this is uh Alethea, how does she respond let me, I'll ask it in a different way. Why doesn't Alethea initially go off with Hardcourt? Um, is it kind of because she likes the idea because that Sparkish, like, um, is, like, basically incapable of, like, being jealous or something? She isn't entirely thrilled with that, no. What, what she gives as her reasoning is that she's engaged and she has to honor that engagement. Right? She's engaged to, to Sparkish and she has to, you know, tolerate that. Uh, she, she has to, to, you know, go along with that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's so annoying, right? Um, and, but what ends up happening? Why is she able to kind of break her engagement with Sparkish? What inspires her to do this? Um, she basically just like falls for hardcore because he's like, I don't know, just because he's like a way better person. Yeah, he doesn't suck as much, sure. But, um, you know, we knew that. She knows that right from the beginning. What is, ends up happening is um, Sparkish, uh, you know, gets a letter from that is actually intended for Pinchwife, for Marguerite Pinchwife, um, that Pinchwife, her husband, shows to Sparkish, and he thinks it is between Althea and Horner. He thinks they're getting getting together, um, and that's what gets him angry. That's what irritates him. For some reason, that that's just a step too far. Um, and so he explodes, and and he ends the engagement, which frees her to then marry, or go go away with rather, Harcourt. So that ends up uh, that that's how that relationship transpires. Um, so let's let's describe Sparkish a little bit, because he is another very common type at this time. We talked about the rake, the the libertine figure. What type of person is Sparkish?
he's basically just like not a good person. He's like uh he's like attracted to Alicia for her money, which is like all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And like um he's kinda like a player too, I guess. Yeah, he's a little bit. Um and he's like pretty possessive of her for like no reason. He's not entirely possessive until the end, right? He, and towards the beginning, he really doesn't care. You know, he he's sort of free with her affection because again, he's he's only marrying her for the dowry. So he's not as let's say possessive as Pinchwife. Pinchwife is, you know, he has the gold medal for possessiveness. Um, but Sparkish is is uh, what's known as a fop. Has anybody heard that term? You mean like loser or <laughs> like, no, I mean, no, I yeah, I, I don't do people use the term fop to mean loser. I've not heard that. No, I'm just saying, I don't know what it means. Oh, okay. I see. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Yeah. A, a fop is a, a person who's, um, overly concerned with dress and appearance. Uh, they they usually have a kind of very affected manner. Um, the their style tends to be, uh, uh, at least in this period anyway, tends to be very French. They look towards France for fashion, um, and always throw in a French phrase or whatnot in order to uh, to to show their standard. I don't think actually Sparkish does the the French thing, but he is overly concerned with his appearance with his kind of delicacy um and that type of thing and that's this is another very common uh type in this period um it's it's the kind of the the person who is sort of overly uh puffed up always has white face makeup on um and and his powdered rig uh is worried about his appearance and how he dresses and and that's sparkish um, he's he's overly smart in dress and manner, as as you might say, uh, and we see this with a few different types um, throughout the rest of the 17th century. Uh, when we get to like the the 1690s, uh, Coley Sibber becomes famous uh, for playing fops, um, Sir uh, Sir F- uh, Flopling Flutter is another famous fop. That's a lot of Fs. Um, but that, that's really a type. And you would recognize that um, a little bit in the film. The actor who plays uh, Sparkish in this, he's a, he's a little tamer than a lot of fops. But they're, um, they're very kind of outrageous. You'd think the Oscar Wilde type. Uh, that is drawn from the 17th century fop. Okay. And so that that's what's going on here. Uh, the, it, they're... Their appearance and their behavior usually indicate, um, like like modern audiences, students often see them as gay. However, they they aren't. That's kind of a modern misconception. Fops are definitely, uh, you know, it's not like they can't be gay or or bisexual, but very often in these plays, they are directing their attention towards women. Um, and, and sometimes very aggressively, too. Uh, however, 
you know, what you see later on in like the 19th century with Oscar Wilde is those affectations are are something that Oscar Wilde picks up. And Oscar Wilde, you know, is definitely definitely um, bisexual. Uh, and so it kind of feeds into a misconception of what the fop is. Um, but if anybody here familiar with the importance of being earnest, it's a play that almost made the syllabus. There's no, really nobody's read that or seen it? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. Well, if, if you get a chance ever, those characters are sort of inheritors of the fop tradition. Right. They're, they're fop light, though. They're very nice. They're nice guys, but they're very concerned with Al Algernon from um, The Importance of Being Earnest, that character. Very concerned with fashion, with the latest thing, with the right thing to say, with um, what you eat at the right time. And The Importance of Being Earnest just sort of mocks all of that. And so there's a bunch of kind of rules of decorum in The Importance of Being Earnest. They don't really make any sense, but you have to follow them anyway. Uh, and, and that's coming out of this a little bit. Um, you know, and so that's what the fop character is. And so that leaves us with, you know, the last really big character in this, which is, um, or the last two big characters, which is Pinchwife and his wife, Marjorie Pinchwife. Um, and we have less than a minute left, so we're probably gonna have to continue this on, uh, on Friday. Um, but just thinking it over, what is Pinchwife worried about most in the world? So if we answer this, we can we can end class for today. What is Pinchwife's biggest concern? So Pinchwife, the, you know, the, the main character there, his biggest worry is that his young wife, Marjorie, is going to be, is going to cuckold him. And cuckold just means she's going to, to sleep with somebody who's not her husband. Um, a cuckold is like a, a person with horns on their head, and the horns represent the fact that you've been, that somebody else is sleeping with your wife. Hence, Horner's name. Right, he's the person who puts on the horns. Okay, and so that is his biggest concern. Um, so Wednesday again, I'll, I'll send out a lecture for you guys, and please listen to that. And then on Friday, we're going to continue this conversation. So if you haven't read the play, please, please read this play. All right, and I will see you then. Thank you. Thank you.